So um, Jim had sent me a Taoist poem of a story of a useless tree. He sent it a week ago and it's been percolating in my head. The idea of the enchanted forest, the idea of uh, trees, the giving tree. I don't know if you remember <laughs> Shel Silverstein's giving tree that we used to read to the children. But I want to read you the, um, the useless tree. This is by Cheng Tzu. There was an old and crooked tree by the village shrine. Every branch twisted and gnarled. The tree towered over the hilltops with its lowest branches 80 feet from the ground. Passing the old tree, Hugh Chu, a carpenter's apprentice, said to Shi, the master cap carpenter, who, without even turning his head, walked on without stopping. What a useless tree that is. Its trunk and branches were so crooked, so distorted and full of knots. The wood is so beautiful, but it can't be cut up. No straight plank can be made from it. The tree serves no purpose at all. There it stands besides the road. No carpenter will even look at it even if you don't look at it, master. So the master carpenter, she replied, the tree on the mountain height is its own enemy. The cinnamon tree is edible, so everyone cuts it down. The lacquer tree is profitable, so they maim it. The cherry, apple, pear, orange, lemon, pomelo, and other fruit trees, as soon as the fruit is ripe, the trees are stripped and abused. Their large branches are split. Their life is bitter because of their usefulness. <laughs> that is why they do not live out their natural lives, but they're cut off in their prime. They attract the attentions of the common world. This is so far for all things. That tree is useless. A boat made from it would sink, a coffin would soon rot, a tool would split, a door would ooze its sap, and a beam would have termites. It's worthless timber. It's of no use, and that's why it has reached such a ripe old age. <laughs> Every man knows how useful it is to be useful. No one seems to know how useful it is to be useless. This tree has been trying for a long time to be useless. It was almost destroyed several times. Finally, it is useless. I thought that was really interesting. It's nothing special. You're nothing special. Everything we perceive is impermanent in the flow of life, constantly changing. As my father used to say, pantare, the first line in Homer's Odyssey, everything flows. And so I think what the master is saying is that if we free ourselves of goals and attainments, and let go of any wish to be a certain way or possess certain things and leave everything alone, then we're truly free. If I am a useless tree, I'm happy to be so. Long may I remain useless. Long may the oxen in need of shade sit beneath my gnarled and twisted boughs. <laughs> and I, I was thinking really of the giving tree because at the end of his life, the tree is completely cut down and the old man, the boy who is now an old man, uh, finds no use in life. And the tree says, come sit on my trunk, right? But what does Silverstein mean? And the tree was happy. Um, Silverstein was a complex character, right? He was an artist, but he went to Hugh Hefner's Playboy Mansion. He did all his artwork. He wasn't one for happiness. In fact, the book's illustration of the giving tree, he seems to undermine 
this conceit of happiness and the tree was happy. All we see is a sorry stump and a hunched old man staring forlornly into the distance. Is it happy, we have to ask? Or maybe the book isn't about love and happiness at all, but a lament about passing of time and an unsentimental view of physical decay, a withering away. And he himself once said, after so much criticism by feminists and others about his approach to children, he said, it's just about a boy in a tree. It's pretty sad ending. So to say, and the tree was happy, I think that the pictures betray uh, his underlying skepticism. Which brings me to today's Torah, which I thought uh, I would name of trees and men. And the proof text I want to take is from Bracious and Pasha's Vaera, Genesis 18. Vayera Elov Adonai Be'elone Mamre. And Abraham, a Lord appeared to Abraham in the Elone Mamre. The Elone, alone is a tree, or uh, it's translate as the terebinths. We'll come back to that. Of Mamre, Vahu Yoshev Pesach or Ol Kachomayom, and he sat in the tent in the heat of the day. Vayisa Enov, and he lifted up his eyes. Vayar, and he saw Vehinei Shlosha Anoshim. The semantic problem with this is uh, that the standard biblical commentators uh, struggle between the first and the second verse. He God appears to him in the Elone Mamre, and he's sitting at the tenth tent of uh, open tent. And then what? Oh, and he lifts up his eyes and he sees three men. But what happened in that first verse? So everyone struggles with that, right? The Ramban cites the position of the Rambam in the Moroi Nebuchim, that the opening verse uh, serves as a heading for the rest of the passage. So we're dealing with a vision announced by the first verse, and the three angels continues a vision. So it's just an introductory kind of literary introduction to what appears to be a spiritual vision. The Ramban rejects that approach and he raises an objection uh, of the physical encounter. The question is, what does it mean? And what is the, the, the separation between the two verses? What, what does it mean? The purpose of the revelation, according to the Gemara in Bav Metzir, is that Avram raises his eyes and sees three men, but in the context of God revealing himself to Avram in the first verse, the Gemara says, Rabbi Chama bar Hanina, that day was the third day after his circumcision. And so he came to inquire about his welfare. That was the purpose of the first verse. And then the next verse, Vayiso Eino Vayar, is unrelated to that revelation. That was Bikur Cholim. Oh, so we're taught that the connection between the Bikur Cholim and the first verse is that Godol Hachnosos Orchim from Kabbalos Pnei Shechina, meaning the disconnect between the first verse that God appeared to Abraham and the second verse that three angels appeared is that God was talking to Abraham. He was he was Bikur Cholim. He was on the first day after his Mila. And so the rabbis learned from the disconnect between the first and the two Psukim that the hospitality to a wayfarer is greater than welcoming the Shechina. Very nice. But the Orachim has a very difficult objection to the semantic order of this verse. 
The Orachim points out that everywhere else it says, Vayera Hashem Elov, right? Vayedabe Hashem El Moshe. Here it says, Vayera Elov, comma, Hashem. What is the reverse of that? Meaning, why would you put the word Elov before Hashem? There is something about him, Abraham, that comes in between the Vayera, the appearance, and the divine. The appearance, the verb, he appeared, Elov, Abraham, Yudke Vovke. And that brings the Orachim to, um, I would say, a mystical answer to that question. And if I can quote the Orachim HaKadosh, the Nira B, it appears, Ki Kavonas HaKosov He, it came to tell us something radically new about Abraham and about his spirituality. That what? Wow. The fact that the semantic difference between the usual Vayera Hashem El Moshe, El Avram, El Yitzchok, and here Vayera Elov, Hashem is to tell us that the Elov means that he's no longer Abraham. He is now Abraham incarnated with the Shekhinah. And so when God appears to Elov, what he is saying is that he has now become a different person. V'hu omro vayera Elov Hashem shegilo Hashem shekhinosa Elov. V'lo hikdim tevas Elov lehaskaras Hashem. And so why does that why is that proved by the sequence of the of the verb and the noun? So the Orachim says the sequence would not have been apparent to us if it would have said Vayar Hashem Elov, which is the correct way. But by reversing it, we have done ki Hashem yafsik bein hagilui le mitgalebo that the elov splits between it's a hafsoka between the revelation of the revealer to the one who is revealed vahavein and understand this point the orachim is has the same issue as the gemara what's the difference between the first pasuk and the second pasuk there's no connection between the two. But his solution is entirely different. It's not an ethical one, you know, that Hachnosas Orchem is even greater than talking to God. He is saying that the solution is a mystical one. Abram has be- become incarnated uh, with the Shechina, and that is sufficient. No words are now needed. There was no other communication needed. And now, he you knows and he sees three men coming, but now he's a different person that sees the three angels. That's the way... Reblevi Yitzhak of Berdichev, the Kedusha Slavi, describes it as a religious experience. And the Lord appeared to him in Elone Mamre. What is it? Why does it not say, and the Lord appeared to Abraham? What is Elov? Why is Avraham's name not mentioned? And it seems that God pours bounty upon his creatures. But there is excess bounty that he has not yet contracted into the world's. Meaning, that there's what we call in Hasidus the makif, 
there's something that comes into the world, but it's constrained, the symptom. But there is bounty that is excess outside that. Now, the bounty has been contracted in the worlds is through the osseous of the Torah. The osseous of the Torah, according to the Sefer Yetzirah and the Bahir, and then later on by the Zohar, are the spiritual building blocks that the world was created. So that the periodic table of spirituality uh, the elements in the periodic table of the 22 osseous. And so the Kedushas Levi picks up on that and says that the world of the Seraphim, the angels, are contracted into the letters of Seraphim. And Avraham, the bounty comes from the contraction of God's chius, his vitality, into the letters of Avraham. That's why when you go to a Hasidic Rebbe, he's always asking you for the names of your name and the names of your family. Write them down on the kvittel, right? So a person who serves Hashem, according to the Kedushas Levi, with Tveikas, what happens is he escapes the genetic and elemental natural state of his spirituality, which is confined in the letters of his name, Avraham, he sheds that because he's in Dvekas with the bounty, with the excess. And so the, he becomes attached to the excess, the bounty that has not been yet contracted, meaning in Kabbalistic terms, he's able to access the makif before the tzimtzum. And that's what it means Vayera Elah, that he didn't call him by his name anymore because he had now accessed something greater than his own aliquot of his own spirituality that was genetically disposed to him. So he notes that Avram's name is omitted because his understanding of this phenomena fits in well what we've been saying, that Avram's service of God involved a communion and total devotion, the bounds of the limitation, and that finds its expression in our very names, which are comprised of letters. Avram sheds the individuality expressed by his name and conjoins with the divine that knows no bounds. Now, the Degel Machne Ephraim is what I want to focus on today because uh, he doesn't allow us off the hook so easily. <laughs> he doesn't allow for such uh, wonderful spiritual experiences and uh, transcendent experiences. And so he wants to resolve the Orachaim's objection as to why the word sequence of Yudke Vovke and a love, which should have been in the reverse, it should have been Vayera Hashem a love instead of Vayera a love Hashem, in the following dramatic way. And this, for me, is paradigmatic of the Dago, who I believe represents pristine. Uh, Baal Shem Tov Torah, without the influence of the Maggid of Mezrich and all the Kabbalah. Please forgive me, Yaakov. And so he starts off with this dramatic statement. It's known that the patriarchs, as it's brought in the Zoya and Tikkuni Zoya, their job was to fix the sin of Otomarishon. That's not new. That's very early, uh, going back to the to the Zoya. And they were trying to fix the sin of Otomarishon who had split the tree of knowledge from the tree of life through his intellectual, rational attempt to understand the divine and the world. And as a result of that attempt, the tree of knowledge was now mixed with good and evil. And 
that is well known and that's the backstory. And the first one to try and fix that is Avram Avinu. That's not, that's not the Daigle, that's not the Baal Shem Tov, that's already brought very early on in Tikkunim and in the Zoya. That Avram Avinu is the first of the patriarchs to effect a Tikkun, a mending of what the flaw Adam had caused, which was what? Through the t- tasting of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, now good and evil were admixed together. They were Mu'urav, Bosovacholov. It was a mixture. And our world of a post-Edenic world is a world in which there's no pure good and there's no pure evil. It's all mixed together, according to Kabbalah. And so he's the first one to attempt the tikkun of that hyper-intellectualism, that splitting of the Eitzah Chaim, the experience living uh, experience of the divine, from the rational intellectual understanding of the divine. As he says, and now he's quoting his grandfather, the Baal Shem HaKadosh, quoting the Psalm 34, Sur Meirav Asetov, Bakei Sholom, the Sholom, the Shlemus, the integration of Sur Meirav and Asetov is what? Removing the evil from the evil within and the Asetov transforming it to the good. Now, Yaakov and I will will argue about the Balatanya's interpretation, uh, which is a two-step process for the Balatanya, which is with your Yetzahara and with the evil in the world, there has to be first a distancing and then a transformation. That was taken from the Baal Shem HaKadosh. The, the Baal Shem HaKadosh quoting his grandfather is saying, it's not that you have to distance the Surmeira and run to the evil. That keeps the split alive. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, where the two are mixed together, the initial response is, okay, when you're in the world, go to the good and stay away from the evil. But what the Daigle is telling us is to resolve the Orachim's objection, intentionally uses an unusual formulation of Vayero Hashem Elov instead of he says, Vayero Elov Hashem, to allude to this profound idea. That is, and he's going to give you an example. For instance, a tzaddik sits in a group of people and speaks to them of certain material mundane matters and relates stories that appear to be vain. But in truth, the tzaddik who is sitting there is actually attached in thought to that excess to that makif, to that understanding that everything in this world comes from Hashem. And the words that he utters, while to them appear material and vain, he sees and regards them as holy and spiritual. So they're talking about mundane things, and he's hearing only spiritual things. Regarding, similarly, all down-to-earth stories that people relate to him and all matters that they tell him, he always sees the holy aspects of them. Rab Nachman talks about this all the time. In the Sipuri Masias, he tells us, I'm going to tell you some stories. They're fairy stories, but they are from Shanim Kadmonios. They're primordial, meaning they come from early myths and fairy tales that I'm going to show you how holy they are, because everything comes originally from above. And he says, I heard from my Baal Shem, my grandfather, that the songs of the nations of the world sings are all aspects of love and fear of God spreading down 
from above to the lower levels. Even the music that comes from the nations of the world comes from a very high place. Rav Nachman warns us uh, about passing churches. He says, be very careful when you listen to that music because it's so enticing. Anyone who's heard Handel's Messiah knows that. I once went with Charles Morrison in London and asked Ashila of the only rabbi in London who I could accept the answer from because he was from Frankfurt and he understood classical music, Rabbi Munk. And we said to him, you know, it's Christmas time and we want to go and hear the Messiah. It's the most glorious piece of music. And so he said to us, yeah, yeah, I, I understand fully. Let me tell you what I did in Berlin. I left after the first half. <laughs> the first half is Old Testament from Isaiah chapter 40. The second half is New Testament. So he would stay for the first half and hop all the hispilers from the music. That's what he's talking about. That music, which is even beyond words. The Baal Shem says that the tzaddik, which is all of us, right? The tzaddik is able to connect uh, those utterances, whether it's vain speech or music, and connect it with the divine. But it's vain. It's secular. I thought we have a separation between Tov and Ra, secular and sacred, Tuma and Tara. What is he talking about? And so the Baal, and so the Degel carries on. That's what it means. And the Lord appeared to him in Elone Mamre. Now we're coming to my trees, the terebinths of Mamre. What is Elone? Well, Elone Mamre refers to people. Kiha Adam we're told in Deuteronomy. For man is surely like a, 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 a tree. Don't cut the fruit trees because a man is like a fruit tree. So the Elonim, the, uh, the terebinths are trees. And Mamre? Mamre comes from Bensora Umore, is punning on the word rebellious son. It's those stubborn, rebellious, these people even who rebel against God with their words, the Apikorosim, the deniers, everybody, they too, you connect with the Tzaddik who cleaves to Hashem, and it's a love. It is just to him and not to them, for he is the one who Yoshev. Pesach oil. He is the one who's sitting. And because he is the tzaddik, he's connecting to the excess of the divine. So he is incarnated and therefore he becomes the filter through which everything in this world comes through and becomes sanitized in a sense. The Daigle is teaching us when the tzaddik descends to a lower level, what I call the blotter, which is what we're in right now, everybody, he does not really go down. He continues to be connected to the Shekhinah. And so when he speaks of and listens to mundane matters, he lifts and elevates them with them. So unlike the Kedusha Slavi, Daigle's Abraham cleaves to God, yes, for sure, like the Kedusha Slavi. But he leaves that state of Tavakus and engages with us sinful mortals and our idle chatter and our music based on the Baal Shem Tov's teaching. And that has something divine. However, it is fallen. It is the notion of the fallen divine sparks that he is rescuing. Now, I'm reminded of Rav Soloveitchik's explanation when I was in Boston of why the Torah tells us that Abraham planted an Aishel tree at the end of this parasha. The Torah relates this detail 
because Abraham taught the world that through this tree one could perceive the master of the universe. God himself controls the flowering and growth of the tree, the falling and the withering of the leaves, and the budding and growing of new leaves and luscious fruit in the, in the spring. He waxed poetic at this point. Organic life is revealed through the tree, and through the tree God is perceived as well. And therefore, the Torah tells us in Parsha Shoftim, Ki Adam Eitzasadeh, a human being is like a tree of the field. Both the human being and the tree need lots of tender, loving care in order to grow and flourish. So Abraham plants the Aishel tree, and from under that tree he called out there in the name of God of the universe, El Olam. He proclaims that God is not just the God of the tree, which was part of the ancient mythic uh, rites, as you know from the Druids that talk about the mistletoe, that there are ancient rites and practices about trees. Uh, we know from the Asherah tree, which was our Vodasora. So he's not just the God of the tree, but he is the God of the entire endless universe. Notice how Ripsolovetsky, true to the Litvisher Misnagdisha approach, keeps that separation between the transcendent and the mortal. The mortal can only wonder. Ripsolovetsky's Abraham wonders as he looks at the tree and sees how magnificent the divine is because of it. It seems, however, that, that Abraham's ability to see is even more profound than the way we have just described it. Now let's go deep and radical. Here the Daigle goes, the Daigle is going to depth com three. And he lifted up and his eyes and saw, Now the Daigle's going to that second posuk. And I remember the Midrash had said, oh, what did he see? Three malachim, that shows you that there is a, an ethical imperative to take care of your guests, even if you're speaking to the divine, right? Now, look what the Degel does. He lifted up his eyes, as it says in Pirkei Ovis, know what is above you. And this is what it means. He lifted. Vayisa means raising. That he saw with his lifted eyes and contemplated in everything there is the fear and love of God going from up all the way down. So he is down here and he's lifting up his eyes, meaning he's lifting up whatever's coming into his tent all the way up. The raising of the eyes, according to the Daigle, is not only a physical act of lifting up your eyes. Oh, look, I got some guests coming. It involves the seeing, not upwards, but for the Daigle, it's always inwards into a deep and inner understanding how the experience of and the Lord God appeared to him spreads. So, Vayero Elov Hashem is connected to the next pasuk, Vayisa Enov. Vayisa Enov. The two are intimately connected because how does God appear to him? By him looking Vayiso, by looking inside, look, looking up, meaning the seeing inwards, a deep and inner understanding of how the experience of God appearing to him spreads, in the words of the Degel, from heaven all the way down to earth into the blotter and becomes clothed in the form of the three men and the mitzvah of welcoming guests. As the rabbis have explained in the Midrash to Hillim, the Roshe Tevas of Eshel, he planted an Eshel, Aleph, Shin, Lamed, is in Midrash to Hillim, it's not in the Gemara, but it's in the Medrash, 
Aleph, Shin, Lamed stands for Achila, Shasia, and Leviah. The three aspects of taking care of guests, which is eating, drinking, and accompanying them. Now see what he does with that. He's quoting a Zohar now. Come and see when Adam Arishan sinned, and now we come full back circle to the tree of knowledge of evil. He sinned with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is, I'm quoting from the Zohar, inflicting death on Kol Yoshvei on the inhabitants of the world. When Avraham appeared, he mends the worlds with another tree of life, proclaiming faith to all the inhabitants of the world. So for the Zohar, by Avraham connecting to the Eitz HaChayim, he's actually coming to fix the flaw of the Eitz Hadas. Since Adam sinned with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Abraham mended it by making it good as in Sur Tov, meaning remove the evil from the evil and Asay Tov, it transforms it to the good. The Zohar is not splitting the two now. He's saying that the function of Avram Avinu by connecting to the tree of life is to take the sting out of evil. Because once you've taken that sting out of it, it immediately transforms back to the good. So what he has done is not only split between the Surmei Rav Yaseitov, like the Balatanya did, but now he has transformed... It bothers me so much that it's continuously wrong to say that. Okay. <laughs> because it's continuously, and it's wrong, because you and I are different. You're, see, now you're talking the Tzadik, the Avramavim. Avram can do that. That's the that's the way of the Tzadik. All right. The Altenebu will agree with you. It's the question of you and me. And I think I, I think that the Daigle resists that business of Tzadik, Benoni, and Russia. The Daigle. No, but I'm not saying Tzadik at all. I'm talking about here's where the Altenebu will suddenly talk because the Tzadik had ever done it. Okay. Here's where the Altenebu will just basically become. Okay, I don't know enough to contrast and compare. But what the Daigle is saying, as follows. How do you do this? How do you remove the evil from the evil? <laughs> Come on, let's get real here, guys. And so he gives us an example. This is an example brought also by the Magid. If a sinful thought, and that means in Hasidus a lustful thought, arises... Avram knew that its origin was in the aspect of chesed, the archetype of chesed, that had fallen and with no one to rescue it. He doesn't look at his evil within as some kind of addictive, disgusting part of his self, right? He looks at it, even Jung talks about that, right? The unconscious parts of ourselves that have split off and come back to haunt us with neuroses, right? That also buys into that very Christian idea that what he is saying is that there's no one there to rescue that sinful, lustful thought. Poor little dear, you're thinking about naughtiness. Oh dear, you've come from a very high place of chesed. And so he arose, ka'ari, first Sif in Shulchan Orech, right? Arise like a lion in the morning. He rose like a lion to perform kindness to the Shekhinah Chavyochol with righteousness and good deeds. This is the meaning is me who chosid, one who does kindness to his creator. And now the Zohar continues. 
by Odomarishon, it says, lest he cast his hand and eats from the tree of life, meaning he takes that rational splitting between good and evil and now applies it to the experiential, to the heart. Therefore, he was not permitted to touch the tree of life. But Abraham, who mended the tree of knowledge, merited the tree of life, as it says, Vayera Elov Hashem Be'elone Mamre. And the Zoya says the Elone Mamre then are not the terebinths of Mr. Mamre, but actually the tree of life. The same tree that Adam sinned with, Mamre, is also the rebellious tree. So Abraham mends that same tree of Mamre, of rebelliousness, and there Elohim appears to him. And this is what is meant by the acronym Eishel, Achila, Shtia, and Lavoya. The Daigle now takes that Zoyar and says, Achila, Shtia, this is all very Gashmiastic. What's going on here? What's that got to do with the Tree of Life? Each one is acting to unite the Shechina with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This dazzling Daigle comes full circle and tells us, Vayera Elov Hashem, the connection between the appearance of Vayera, of the divine in its transcendent. Elov, with him, Abraham, incarnated with the excess of the divine and coming to fix, is Yudke Vovke. He now becomes part of the Shechina, and Yudke Vovke is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So by doing that, by bringing it down, not just by splitting Ra and good, but reuniting them in a sanitized way, he has reunited the Shechina with the Divine. First, he has to bend the mixing of good and evil by splitting the two, for sure. However, he was not content with a dualistic, Soloveitchik world divided between good and evil. He then went a step further by reuniting them, by taking the evil out of the evil, and by seeing in all evil the notion of the fallen good, by reifying it back to its source, and in doing so reuniting the Shechina, the not-God, with the divine, the God. This, according to the Daigle, is the definition of the Eitzachayim, the Tree of Life, where life and divine vitality permeates all but needs the tzaddik to repair and reunite the disparate and fragmented divine. We've come full circle to the Eishel, the tamarisk tree of the sacred orchard. What we have done is come from an ancient mythical idea of the sacred grove through the pshat in the Torah, which splits the two, back to the mystical and the mythical. And I think that's really wonderful idea in the sense that there is always something, there's always something deep and powerful when we talk about sacred trees and, and when we talk about the giving tree. And so I come back to the Chang Tzu, the skilled carpenter, who when he returns home has a dream. And the sacred oak appears to him in the dream saying, what are you comparing me with? Are you comparing me with useful trees? This is why they do not outlive their natural lives, cut off from their prime. They attract the attention of the common world. This so is for all things. As for me, I've been trying for a long time to be useless. I was almost destroyed several times. Finally, I am useless, and this is what's useful to me. 
And I think that also that comes to the giving tree. <laughs> when it says at the end, and the tree was happy, uh, I used to tell my children, but not really, that, the, that, that when the little boy who's now an ancient man crippled and gnarled with rheumatoid arthritis, nowhere to sit, and the tree says, come boy, come, come sit on me, and the tree was happy, I think that that happiness isn't that joy of life in the, in the uh, youthful sense, but the sense that somehow that tree has now become sacred, it's become useless, and therefore it's the seat for the tzaddik. Thank you very much.